Hello and welcome to Hugh's Joy of Food, a bite-sized podcast celebrating all that's amazing about everything edible, from the simplest snack to the fanciest feast. I'm Hugh Smithson-Wright, and this week on Hugh's Joy of Food, I review the Barry Brothers' outstanding new restaurant Lairpool in Liverpool, share some thoughts on what makes the perfect cheese board in Ask Hugel, and gins in tins, that staple of any train journey, are my treat of the week. Each week on Hugh's Joy of Food, I review a restaurant in some way, whether it's one I've eaten at recently, a takeaway, or a make-at-home meal kit. First, a disclaimer. My job as a restaurant PR and consultant means that I'm paid to promote the interests of the handful of restaurants I represent. If I feature a client on this podcast, I'll make that clear, like I do on my social media channels, and in all cases, I'll make it clear if all or any part of a meal I review was complimentary. You can rest assured that everywhere I review, I recommend. This show is about the joy of food, so if you're looking for vicious eviscerations, this probably isn't the podcast for you. With that out of the way, it's time for this week's review. Ever since my first visit to Liverpool a few years ago, I've been in love with this vibrant, welcoming, cosmopolitan city. An easy couple of hours from London by train and compact enough to get from one side to the other of on foot in about half an hour, Liverpool offers an embarrassment of riches in terms of history, sights, shopping, culture and, of course, restaurants. Finding ourselves on the Wirral for a friend's birthday party one recent Saturday, Dave and I arranged on the Sunday to go for lunch in Liverpool with our friends Ian and Sarah, who live in nearby St Helens. Having already been a few times themselves, they weren't at all surprised when I said that I'd like to check out Lairpool, the new restaurant in Albert Dock from the charming Barry brothers Ellis and Liam. If you watch Great British Menu or Ready Steady Cook, or if you've just been following emerging names in UK hospitality these past few years, you'll probably know of Ellis Barry, who's the super-talented chef at the helm of Lairpool. He made his name at the Marham Grass on Anglesey, which he and Liam, who's in charge of the business side of things, opened a few years ago, having converted their parents' cafe on a camping site into a restaurant championing Welsh produce, which went on to win all sorts of awards. Lairpool opened earlier this year, after a few pandemic-related false starts, in Albert Dock, the elegant quayside district which older listeners might remember as being home to Richard and Judy era this morning, but is now home, among many other attractions, to Tate Liverpool, whose superb collection is well worth visiting, as well as the Maritime and International Slavery Museums, the Beatles Experience, a Victorian carousel, and numerous waterside bars and restaurants. Lairpool bills itself as offering social fine dining, which translates into serving precise, clever food prepared to exacting standards in a room that's smart but relaxed and, as we found, very much conducive to catching up with old friends over a long boozy luncheon. While there are a handful of tables outside which I think would be lovely for drinks, for dining I'd say you want to be inside in the main dining room. With full-length windows and a double-height ceiling, it's a light, airy space, focused around an open kitchen with a few counter seats for those who like to watch the chefs at work, exposed brickwork, and a mix of bonquettes and Scandi-style bleached wood furniture. There's also a huge glass drying cabinet in which hangs row upon row of ducks, but more about that in a moment. Towards the back of the restaurant, there's a cocktail bar, also open to non-diners, that's deliberately more dimly lit and intimate, and up a spiral staircase there's a semi-private dining room on a mezzanine. 
It's no exaggeration to say it's one of the nicest designed and most immediately appealing restaurants I can remember walking into in years. I loved it on sight before I'd even had a mouthful of food. Now, I'd better get onto the subject of the food because there is a lot to say about it and only so much time to say it in. Despite the Welsh name and Ellis Barry's dedication to using British and particularly Welsh produce, the food doesn't fit easily into any country or category. Across our three and a bit courses, I noticed influences from Thai, Chinese, Italian and French cuisine, among others. But rather than try to pigeonhole Ellis's food, it's better just to sit back and let yourself be surprised and delighted by it. I say surprised because the minimally worded menu descriptions, something which can feel affected but somehow doesn't here, give very little away. We ordered from the a la carte menu. There's also a three-course Sunday lunch menu with choices for each course and a chef's tasting menu, all of which I found somewhat overwhelming in my slightly hungover state. But once we'd settled on the a la carte, things got easier. We started with some excellent Cambrai oysters, half of them dressed with shallot vinegar, the other with Japanese Sanbaizu vinegar and Leopold's homemade sriracha, which with hindsight I wish I'd asked if I could buy a bottle of to take home with me. Then followed their outstanding bread, a whole mini loaf of four-day sourdough, served with canals of paprika-smoked pork fat, every bit as sinfully delicious as it sounds, and a vivid pungent green garlic butter. A nice touch of the a la carte menu is that it includes a complimentary pre-starter, which you can choose. Mine, billed as mussel and lamb on the menu, was astonishing. A rich mussel and olive oil velouté, concealing little cubes of crisp grilled lamb belly, the intensely flavoured fat working wonderfully with the shellfish. My starter proper, described as crab and tomato, was a lovely fresh dish, a pile of carefully picked white crab bathing in an astringent chilled tomato broth, and accompanied by tomato and crab bavarois and a tiny indulgent helping of caviar. Now, I mentioned the ducks drying in a cabinet being a focal point of the restaurant, and they're a focal point of the menu too, and the dish I'd say you really must order at Leopold, at least on your first visit. The ducks are dry-rubbed with a Chinese-style blend of spices, I'd guess fennel seeds and five spice to be in the mix somewhere, before being roasted to give crisp skin over a thin layer of delicious fat and perfectly pink flesh. Carved into thick slices and then reassembled before being brought to the table, it's accompanied by asparagus and a crackingly crunchy potato roshti and a couple of delicious sauces. Recommended for two to four to share, with the addition of an extra serving of each of the sides, it easily fed four of us in great style. I honestly can't overstate how delicious this was, the careful spicing and precise roasting making this one of the most impressive duck dishes I've ever eaten and one I'm still dreaming about a few weeks later. Before our desserts came, we were all given a white chocolate and strawberry pre-dessert. I'm not sure whether everyone gets one of these or they were a gift from Ellis, who was very much in charge in the kitchen and who I know socially, but they were wonderful, friable shortbread biscuits layered with white chocolate cream and strawberry sorbet. My actual dessert was chocolate and cherry, rich chocolate and cherry ice creams with cherries, chocolate crumbs and pistachios, which looked beautiful and tasted not unlike a deconstructed Black Forest Gatto in a very good way. Special mention must also go to Dave's Liverpool Tart, a very elegant fine dining interpretation of this popular local confection made with muscovado sugar and lemons. With a bottle each of Nye Timber English sparkling wine, a Chilean Chardonnay and a Sonoma Zinfandel, all expertly chosen by Ian from the fairly short but well-considered wine list, plus after-lunch cocktails, because why not, and mineral water, our bill only came to £110 per person before service, which, I must add, was excellent throughout. 
Now, I know that some of you will balk at me saying only when that's still over 100 quid each for lunch, but I think that's excellent value for money for truly exceptional food. And as I always say, you don't have to spend anything like that amount to experience this restaurant. There's a weekday lunch menu, or you could just come for cocktails and snacks in the bar. And I hear they're running an oyster cart throughout the summer too. But really, if you're going to come to Liverpool and Liverpool, it's worth splashing out on the full experience. Next time, and oh boy, will there be one. I think I'll go for the full tasting menu, simply because on the strength of this meal alone, I now want to eat a great deal more of Ellis Barry and his team's thrillingly good food. And although I know awards aren't everything, if any restaurant should be the first in Liverpool ever to be awarded a Michelin star, then surely it's this one. Because unlike my Welsh pronunciation, as restaurants go, I'd say Liverpool is pretty damn perfect. And I loved it. For all information, visit Lerpool, that's L-E-R-P-W-L dot com. Each week, I answer a listener's burning culinary question in Ask Hugel. This week, it's actually two listeners' questions, who by amazing coincidence have asked exactly the same thing. Sam in Greenwich and Frankie from Kingston-upon-Thames both write, Hey Hugel, what makes the perfect cheese board? Now, if ever there were a subject I have something to say about, it's this one. Not just because I love cheese and usually order it instead of dessert if it's an option in a restaurant, but also because in my many years of eating out I've been served some absolutely outstanding cheese boards and some absolutely terrible ones. There's definitely an art to putting one together, whether in a restaurant or at home, and getting it right can be the difference between a joyful experience and a deeply disappointing one. For the purposes of this answer, I'm going to assume that Sam and Frankie are asking for the purposes of home entertaining. But if any restaurateurs are listening, I'm just going to take this opportunity to say, if you serve cheese in your restaurant, please tell your staff what the cheeses being served are. I have genuinely lost count of the number of times I've asked what the cheeses are, not to put anyone on the spot, but because I'm genuinely interested, only to be told verbatim, that's a goat's cheese, that's a soft cheese, that's a hard cheese, and that's a blue cheese. Well, yes, having eyes, I can see that. But I like to know the variety of cheeses I'm eating, not just the type, which I don't think is asking too much. But actually, moaning aside, the fact I've heard those words so often does point us to a helpful truth, which is that that classic foursome does work very well together. However, controversially, and I know this is going to upset a lot of goat's cheese fans, I can honestly say I've never met a goat's cheese that I liked enough that I would want to seek it out again. I don't dislike goat's cheese and will gladly eat it if served it. I could just do without it. So my first tip to you, Sam and Frankie, is to get rid of goat's cheese and look at some combination of a hard cheese, a soft or softer cheese and a blue. Rather than recommend any specific cheeses for you, Sam and Frankie, I'm going to concentrate instead on how to choose which cheeses to serve and then leave it up to you to experiment. First things first, it's very important to think about the strength of the cheeses you want to serve. Assuming you're serving your cheese board at or towards the end of a meal, whether before, after or instead of dessert, think about what will best follow the rest of your menu. If you served strongly flavoured, spicy or rich food, you'll want to make sure the cheese matches up. Likewise, if your menu's been lighter, fresher and mild, you're best serving milder cheeses which won't totally overpower what's gone before. You might like to choose cheeses that are all broadly similar in terms of strength, Or you might like to have a range of strengths, with the strongest being the one that best matches the meal. 
In terms of theming your cheeses, I do think it's nice to stick to one country when choosing cheese, or even one region or county. I'll always advocate buying British. British cheeses really are right up there with the very best in the world. And you could put together a wonderful cheese board sourced solely from Wiltshire or Norfolk or Lancashire, or as my mother-in-law did recently, Cumbria. But if you do want to look further afield, then an all-French, Spanish, Italian or Swiss cheese board, for example, will always be a treat. If, like me, you're lucky enough to live near a specialist cheesemonger, in my case the wonderful Hamish Johnston in Battersea, they'll be delighted to help you put together a cheese board that offers the right variety of strengths and styles of cheese to perfectly round off your menu. I like to tell them a type of cheese I particularly like, and then ask what they've got that's like it, but not actually it. That way, I and my guests get to try something new, but which I can be confident they'll enjoy. If you don't have access to a specialist shop, then head for a larger supermarket with a deli counter. While the choice is unlikely to be quite as good, you'll still be able to get some expert advice, and very importantly, have a taste. The beauty of buying cheese to order is you can get exactly the right quantity. Pre-packed cheeses often come in such large pieces that even if you keep the number of cheeses to a minimum, there's always going to be waste, which, as with any food, should be avoided at all costs. Should you not have access to either a cheese shop or deli counter, well, don't fret. Just go for the best you can find and afford. Almost any supermarket now has a premium range, and I've had some outstanding supermarket-bought cheeses from the likes of Lidl's Deluxe range and Waitrose One. Just try to avoid the bigger branded cheeses. Not that there's anything wrong with them, for the most part. They're just likely to be something your guests will have had before, or indeed will have in the fridge at home, and it's nice for there to be an element of discovery to the cheese you serve. If you can only get hold of one really good cheese, I think it's absolutely fine, and in fact, often better, to just serve that than try to make up a board from slim pickings. Okay, that's style, strength and sourcing covered. Now what to serve with your cheese? Well, not celery for a start, it being Satan's own vegetable. But I do think something crisp and crunchy works well with all types of cheese, so a tart green apple or firm pear is perfect. In terms of chutney or pickle, I think less is more here. Just one really good one is absolutely ample. I find that the spice and sweetness of chilli jam is a great complement to most cheeses, but I'd have it instead of, rather than in addition to a chutney. And a little honey drizzled over saltier cheeses like parmesan is heavenly too. Try it. Dried fruit is great with cheese. I love the hard, chewy dried raisins and figs you'll find in specialist stores, or come to think of it, some health food shops. But if you can't lay your hands on those, dried apricots or even just sultanas will do the job. Or, of course, some fresh grapes. As for biscuits or bread, the first thing I'd ask is whether you need them at all. I've never seen the sense in serving hard crackers with hard cheese, which can just be picked up and eaten with your fingers. If you are having them, then, as with chutneys, I think just one really good biscuit is more than sufficient. Peter's Yard crackers are pretty hard to beat, and I'll be honest, I do love a digestive. Bread, I think, is just too heavy at the end of a meal. But if you're serving your cheese board separately, perhaps as a late supper, then toast can be lovely. But if you're doing that, you might as well think about going the whole hog and just making everyone a Welsh rare bit. So there you have it. In summary, the perfect cheese board offers choices, but not too many. Uses the best cheese you can find, wherever that might be. Gives thought to strength as well as style. And keeps the accompaniment simple. Sam and Frankie... And indeed, anyone else listening who's found this helpful, I'd absolutely love to hear about and even see the next cheese board you put together. So do please let me know how you get on. 
If you'd like me to have a go at answering your food or drink related question, you can tweet me at hrwrite or send me an email to hrw at hughrichardwright.com. For my final segment, Treat of the Week, each week I share something food or drink related that's been putting a smile on my face. This week, it's premixed cocktails in cans, or as I and I think most people know them colloquially, gins in tins. Picking up a couple of bits and pieces in my local convenience store recently, I was amazed to notice that an entire fridge was dedicated to cans of premixed spirits and mixers and cocktails, or as I call them, gins in tins. I counted them and there were fully 15 varieties, taking in everything from gin and tonic, the OG from which the category takes its nickname, via Pims and Lemonade and JD and Coke to Malibu and Pineapple. There was even a porn star martini, renamed as a passion fruit martini, as presumably porn star is a bit risque for Tesco Express. I have to admit, I was surprised. I'm old enough to remember when ready-mixed cocktails in cans were a novelty. I don't know whether Marks and Spencer actually invented them, or have ever even claimed to, but it was certainly there that I first encountered them, and marvelled at how clever it was. I can't remember when exactly that was, no more I don't think than about 12 years ago, but even that doesn't feel like very long for something to become so ubiquitous. On getting home, I looked in my own fridge and found four or five ready-mixed drinks in there, from good old M&S G&T to fancier varieties from Six O'Clock Gin, using my friend Romy Gill's special edition mango and lime gin, and a peach iced tea and Bloody Mary from Oliver Payton's Unknown Pleasures brand, which I was kindly sent as a gift, along with their excellent espresso martini. I've seen plenty of other premium brands too. I've not tried one yet, but I do like the sound of the pocket Negroni, and I remember having a particularly delicious Paloma from a brand called Vacay, both of which have particularly chic packaging too. The sheer convenience of canned cocktails makes them the perfect companion for a train journey. The vilification Diane Abbott faced a couple of years ago when she was pictured sipping from a can of M&S Mojito on the train was overwhelmingly outweighed by the sheer volume of people who, like me, could relate hard and loved Diane's style – notwithstanding I should stress that drinking alcohol is prohibited on public transport in London. I'm not entirely convinced by the latest iteration of gins in tins, hard seltzers, which while growing in popularity strike me as being not much more than alcoholic fizzy water, which just sounds a bit weird to me. I'm prepared to be persuaded, but I don't think I can see myself choosing a hard seltzer over a pina colada, say. Of course, I don't encourage excessive drinking, and the beauty of these cans is that they're usually a standard 250ml can size, of which 50ml is alcohol, giving them a relatively low ABV of between 5 and 8%. So a couple of them should be more than sufficient to see you through a couple of hours on the train, without you ending up drunk at your destination, or worse, missing your station altogether. Do check carefully though, the strengths will vary, and some brands might have more booze in them than others. Of course, you don't have to save your gins in tins for the train. They're perfect for picnics too, and handy just to have a few of in the fridge, as I do, for unexpected guests, or even a tipple in the bath. And you certainly won't be alone. According to a recent report in The Independent, UK drinkers spent an astonishing £412 million on ready-to-drink cocktails in 2020. So whether it's a supermarket gin and tonic, a branded spirit with mixer, or one of the more premium newer offerings from the likes of Unknown Pleasures, allow yourself the treat of one of the dozens of gins and tins to be found in just about every shop these days. 
Just remember, as always, to enjoy them responsibly. That's it for this week. Thanks ever so much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, you can tweet me at hrwright or send me an email to hrw at hughrichardwright.com. And I hope you'll join me next week for more of Hugh's Joy of Food. Music